Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Psalm number six tonight, so open to Matthew seven. Oh, (laughs) I had to decide in looking at Psalm six and seeing the reference over to Matthew seven, I had to decide now where will I insert this? And if I inserted it when we came across it, as we were reading through the psalm, I think it breaks up the flow of the psalm. So we're going to start the night by looking at Matthew 7 and see Jesus make a passing reference to one phrase out of Psalm 6, but even that reference is a very odd reference because when you read it in the psalm, you wouldn't think that it should be applied the way that Jesus applies it. Jesus is talking about false prophets. As we continue on Sunday mornings through the book of Revelation, we're going to have to speak more about false prophets in order to understand the ultimate false prophet. But here in Matthew 7, Jesus is saying how you can determine, how you can tell a false prophet. And in the midst of that makes this reference that is just to exactly Psalm 6, so it's obvious that he is referencing the psalm, and yet it's such an interesting application of it. I'm going to start reading in Matthew 7, verse 13. This language should all sound very familiar to you. These are passages that we quote and reference fairly frequently, like, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to zoe, to life eternal. And few there be who find it. I'm not really going to concentrate on that verse tonight, but gosh, that's awfully Calvinistic sounding. Here's Jesus himself saying that the broad way, the open way, the easy way, lots of people go that way. But the gate that leads to eternal life is small and narrow, and there are few that find it. So Jesus creates the contrast between the many and the few. Verse 15, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, They are ravenous wolves. If you would, real quickly, Tom, turn to Matthew 24, 24, and read that to us. Jesus here says that false prophets are going to come looking good. They're going to have sheep's clothing on, so they're going to look like Christian people. And even though they look good on the outside, he says, inwardly, they're like ravenous wolves. They're going to eat the sheep. They're not going to protect the sheep. The same way that Jesus said to the Pharisees 
You look good on the outside. You're like whitewashed sepulchers. On the inside, you're all dead men's bones and all uncleanness. But on the outside, you look good. Same thing here, that there are going to be false prophets who look like carers of the sheep and are wearing clothing like sheep, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. Okay, so how are we going to differentiate between the people who are actually good prophets, leaders within the church, and those that are ravening wolves? Well, that's what Jesus is about to tell us, how we're going to know that difference. Tom, would you read Matthew 24, 24? For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Okay, now Jesus is telling us that these false prophets are also going to have miraculous abilities. They're going to be doing signs and wonders that are going to be so convincing that were it not for the fact that Christ himself has sealed the elect, and protected them so that they're not going to be drawn astray. If it were not for Christ's protective power, even the elect would be fooled because they will be such convincing signs and wonders. Hang on to that. We'll get back to it in a moment. In verse 16, Jesus says how we're going to know them. And it's going to be tough. I mean, they're going to look like sheep, dress like sheep, walk around talking about bah. Being as sheep-like as they can possibly be and doing signs and wonders that will make people say, these have to be from God. I mean, look at the, the signs that they're doing. Look at the miracles they're doing. The acid test, according to verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. And then he says, grapes are not gathered from thorns and figs are not gathered from thistles. In other words, thorns and thistles don't produce good grapes and good figs. He's going to continue with more examples of this and say good trees don't make bad fruit and bad trees don't make good fruit. So in the end, you're going to know them by their fruit. So how are we going to define their fruit? Based on what we're about to read, the fruit he's talking about is the end result of everything they are doing, the way they look, whatever miraculous abilities or powers they may have, no matter how convincing or erudite they may be, what are they driving you toward? If they're driving you toward anything other than Christ, then that's bad fruit. The good fruit results in advancing the cause of Christ. It's kind of like we talked about last night at men's group that ministries that are set up to advance the person at the front of the room, well, that would be bad fruit. All ministries have to be designed in such a way that the end result is Christ. He has all the supremacy. He gets all the worship and glory, not the false prophet at the front of the room. So Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorns. Figs are not gathered from thistles, are they? The obvious answer is no, they're not. So even so, or in the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. So if you see bad fruit coming off somebody, bad tree. Axiomatic. Because only good trees can bear good fruit. Verse 18, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, 
nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So obviously Jesus is saying these false prophets are going to be judged because they are bearing bad fruit. The end result is they're going to be under the judgment of God. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Okay, that's all preparatory for what we're about to read because it's in that context of knowing good trees and bad trees that Jesus then says this, which we have quoted so many times, but he is saying it within the context of knowing the good from the bad. There are some people who are going to be doing the miraculous. Tom just read that Jesus himself said they're going to be doing wonders. They're going to be doing miracles. They're going to be doing signs that are so convincing that it would deceive the very elect if that were possible. In that context, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Kurios, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So now Jesus is making a distinction between those who are producing good fruit and bad fruit and a distinction between those who say, Lord, Lord, you are my kurios, you are my master, and yet they're producing bad fruit. And so they can say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Oh, here's these miracles we just read about that Jesus said were coming. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Didn't we in your name perform many miracles? Just like Jesus said, some of them are going to be performing these miracles that are just so impressive that were it not for the preserving power of Jesus, even the elect would be fooled by it. So Jesus says, you've got to be careful. You've got to be discerning. You've got to be able to tell the false prophets from the real prophets, and the way you do it is by their fruit. What's the end result of whatever they're doing? What fruit are they producing? Are they driving you to Christ? Are they driving you to yourself, your ego, building yourself up? Are they driving you to become their disciples so that they can just build up a following for themselves? There are so many ways that these false prophets can go wrong. The only good fruit is the fruit that leads to Christ and his preeminence in all things. So watch what the end result of what they're doing is. Doesn't matter what they look like. Doesn't matter what miracles they might be doing. Look at the end result of what the false prophets are doing. Because they're going to be the ones that are saying to Jesus, but Lord, Lord, Master, you're my master. Sure, haven't we done all these great things for you? Prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name. In your name, we've performed many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And then he picks up directly from Psalm 6 and says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, when we see it in Psalm 6, David is crying to God for protection, and he is asking for deliverance from his enemies. And then the end of the psalm, like so many of these contrasting psalms that David writes, the end of the psalm is David saying with great confidence, but God does hear me. But God does listen to me. 
And so he's speaking against his enemies and saying, because I know that God is hearing me, depart from me, you enemies of mine, you workers of iniquity. Jesus picks it up and quotes David within the context of false prophets, which is just such an interesting application that only Jesus would be able to make because I don't think any of us would have read that from the psalm and said, oh, David's talking about false prophets. Okay, now we can go to Psalm 6. Psalm 6 is short and pretty simple. It is not complicated to understand. And it is David on his bed crying to God. He even goes so far as to say that he's he's drowning in his tears. He's so wasting away. The word in the Hebrew is actually, I'm sick. I feel sick inside. I feel weak. I feel incapable of getting up and doing the things that are required of me. And then, once he recognizes who God is, In fact, that's not even in the psalm. You just feel it. You just feel David suddenly making that change from, where are you, God, which he actually asks. The question is, how long? How long am I going to be like this? And then you see that change of mind where David says, but I know God hears me. And I think that's the moment where David's theology, his understanding of the sovereignty of God, finally kicks in and overwhelms his sense of, I'm sick, I'm not doing well, where, you, where are you, God? When are you going to help me? How long is this going to last? Oh, my enemies. And then he remembers, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, God's on his throne doing whatever seems good to him. So my enemies can't do me any harm because God does hear my prayers. So that's a synopsis of the psalm itself, which starts with, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Actually, there is a superscript to this. David says it's for the choir director with stringed instruments upon an eight-string lyre, a psalm of David. But then he launches right in with, O Lord, don't rebuke me in thine anger and don't chasten me in thy wrath. I don't think David is saying, don't rebuke me and don't chasten me, because in his life, He has been both rebuked and chastened by God. What he's asking is that God, when he rebukes and chastens him, doesn't do it in his anger or in his wrath. Here, I'll give you an example of it. Turn to 2 Samuel 24. Let's just do this. I debated with myself whether we were going to do this, but turn to 2 Samuel 24 for a minute. And this will give us a little insight into David's thinking on this, right at the end of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 24, right here at the end of 2 Samuel, God is angry with Israel. Because he's angry with Israel, he stirs David up so that David will take a census of the fighting men in Israel and then God is angry at David for doing it because of the way David does it because he decides that the census is going to show his own authority, his own power as king of Israel. But the opening verse of chapter 24 says, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it, the anger of the Lord, incited David against them, against Israel. 
So God himself incites David to do what is necessary for God to then punish Israel. I mean, that's really, really sovereign, but I don't know how to read it any other way. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. And the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the people so that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the king still see In other words, I I pray that you become a great wealth of people, but why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? So Joab seems to understand that you should not be doing this. The people are not yours, David. The people belong to God. And yet God incited David to go and make this count. And even though Joab, his prophet, has said, don't do this, verse 4 says, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab, And against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. And then from verse 5 to like verse 9, it's all the different areas that they went into. Verse 9 says, Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. Oh, yeah, now he feels guilty. Okay, let's do this. And then he thinks about it. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have acted very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus says the Lord, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I may do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee for three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider And see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And then David said to Gad, and this is really a brilliant answer, because God has just set up a choice of three before David. I'm going to do one of these three. I am going to punish you because I'm angry at Israel. That's how this chapter began. God was stirred up at Israel, looking for opportunity to judge Israel, incited David to count the people. And then David says, I'm sorry, God, I've sinned. And then you'll notice that all three of the punishments are not like when David carried on with Bathsheba and then God killed that baby. That was a very direct interaction with David for his guilt. You'll notice that all three of these punishments are on Israel collectively. Do you want seven years of famine or three months before your foes running as they pursue you? That sounds deadly. Or shall there be three days of a pestilence in your land? Consider and see what you're going to answer. So David's brilliant answer to Gad is, I'm in great distress, 
So let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. Great answer. So don't let me run from my enemies. No, bad idea. No, and don't put famine on us because I don't want to go to our neighbors and have to beg food from them. But the pestilence that's directly from God, let him do that because I feel better being in the hands of God even in his anger than I would being in the hands of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time. 70,000 men of all the people from Dan to Beersheba died. That's what David gets for counting them. Now that you counted them to figure out what your strength was, God kills off 70,000 of them. Oh, what's your strength now, David? Who are you going to trust now, David? You going to trust your chariots and your horses and your mighty men of valor? Are you going to trust me? The end of the story, just since we're this far into it, the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, and the Lord relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who destroyed the people, it's enough. Relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people, and he said, Behold, it is I who have sinned, and it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, these people, what have they done? Please let thy hand be against me and against my father's household. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. And David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. And Arauna looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Arauna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. And Arauna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. And Arauna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes for the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Arauna gives to the king. And Arauna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Verse 24 says, however, the king said to Arauna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. I I could preach on that. I'm not going to sacrifice to God something that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord, and he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and thus the Lord was moved by the entreaty for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. Okay, I read that whole thing to say, David knows what it is to fall into the hands of an angry God. And David knows what it is to be judged by an angry God, whether it's the death of his child that he's had with Bathsheba, or whether it is the event that we just read. David starts this psalm by saying, Oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. I know what that's like. I've been through it. Deliver me from that. Don't chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, 
Well, that's what we all want, don't we? Yes. Don't punish me, God. Don't, in your wrath, don't come back. Give me grace. Grace is what I need. It has to be grace. And then he says, for I am, NASB says, pining away. That's the word that I said earlier in the Hebrew means to be sickly or to be weak. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am weak and sickly, pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. Those two sentences kind of run parallel, those two phrases. One of them is his attitude of soul, where he says, I feel sick, I feel weak. That's an attitude that he has in his spirit. But then he also physically says, my bones themselves physically are, are dismayed. And my soul is greatly dismayed. But thou, O Lord, how long? How long are you going to wait? I'm dismayed. I'm sick. My enemies are after me. How long are you waiting? When are you going to deliver me? Now, the language of soul here is not the language that we think of as eternal spirit, eternal soul. What he's saying is my attitude within me, my sense of well-being, my life force, for lack of a better word. He's saying within me how I feel, my desire to live, has been so crushed by these events. And then in verse 4, he's going to say, save me. He's not talking about eternal salvation. He's already got a guarantee from God of forgiveness. He's already got a guarantee of the Davidic covenant. He's not saying, save me eternally or spiritually. He's saying, revive me. I'm so sick right now. I'm being punished by my enemies right now. So sustain my life. Verse 4 says, return, O Lord, Rescue or deliver my soul, my inward being, and save me, restore me because of your loving kindness. I think it's interesting that David doesn't say, Hey, hey, king here, I'm busy ruling your people, tough gig, but you know, somebody's got to do it, so restore me so that I can get back to that throne thing. He didn't say anything about restore me because David here. Instead, what he says is, restore me, be kind to me, be gracious to me because of your loving kindness, because of your character, because of your nature, because of who you are and because you know what I'm going through right now. For that reason, restore me because of your loving kindness. Now, the reason that I put emphasis a moment ago on the salvation and the restoration language being physical restoration, physical salvation, is because in verse 5, he's now going to start talking about and comparing life and death. And he's going to say, in death, in Sheol, in the grave, well, I, I can't do anything for you. I can't worship you. I can't lead your people. I can't thank you. I can't, I feel like I'm dying Where are you, God? And if I die, what good am I to you then? So the same way that he's not making theological statements about eternal salvation or eternal restoration of his soul, the same way in verse 6, he's not talking about being in the grave eternally. We know that when you die, 
saved or unsaved, your spirit lives on, judgment is coming. We know all that, but that's not what David's getting at here. He's getting at the comparison between a dead man and a living man. In verse 5, he says, for there is no mention of you in death. (laughs) If I'm dead, how am I going to advance your cause? How am I going to speak well of you? How am I going to bless your name? I can't make any mention of you if I'm dead. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? I mean, that is an essential element of all worship toward God is thanksgiving. And he's saying, once I'm dead, I'm not going to be able to do that. It's an interesting bit of persuasive argument on David's part. That he's saying, restore me. Lift me up from my sickness again. Do it by your loving kindness, but also that's going to be beneficial to your people and to you because I can't talk about you and I can't thank you and I can't lead your people. I can't do anything if I'm dead and I'm dying. So where are you? Restore me. Verse 6, I am weary with my sighing. I think we all reach that point at some point where you're just so tired of being sad. You're so tired of being depressed and put upon. It's like the phrase, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm I'm tired of being like this, God. I'm weary of my sighing. And then to emphasize how bad it is, he says, every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. So a little hyperbole on David's part there, where he's saying, even when I'm laying in my bed, when I get up, my bed is wet because I've been crying so much. I make my bed swim, and I dissolve my couch in my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. That's the first time David brings up the adversaries in this psalm, but now we have some idea of why he is so grief-stricken. Because not only is he struggling, apparently he's an old man here, he's struggling with his health, and he's also got the weight of all Israel on him, and his adversaries, as we've seen repeatedly, continue to spread lies about him, continue to take the throne from him. So he says, my eye is just, I've cried so much. I'm so past crying, I've got no more tears. My eye has wasted away because of this grief, and it has become old because of my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. There's the quote from Jesus. David put it in the context of my adversaries have caused me endless grief. I wish they would depart from me because they are doing iniquity to me. They're counteracting what God himself has done by making me king. And yet you can read that psalm time and time again and you would never think, okay, what he's really talking about here is being careful of false prophets. And yet Jesus took that phrase and put it in the context of false prophets and people who will say to him, Lord, Lord, haven't we done these great works in your name? I'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Now, 
Watch what happens next to David. After saying, depart from me, all you who do iniquity, why? Why could he say, depart from me? Why could he say, get away from me? Why could he say, you're evildoers and I want nothing more to do with you? Because the second half of it says, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. A moment ago, he was begging God, saying, I'm weary of my sighing and my weeping. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch and my tears. My eyes are wasted away with grief. It has become old because of my adversaries. And then he turns to his adversaries and says, depart from me. You're nothing but evil workers because the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. What changed? Because earlier in the psalm, David was saying, essentially, woe is me. And then something changed where he said, I know that the Lord hears me. Why does he know that? Because he knows God. Because he knows the character and the nature of God. And because in the midst of his hardship and his crying and his weakness, he remembered what God was really like. In other words, good theology kicked in. And he remembered who he was dealing with. And so the final portion of this psalm is David saying assuredly, I know that God hears me. It's almost like he's saying, I, I know, I know, I went a little overboard a minute ago, but I, but I know you hear me. You're the one that put me on the throne. You're the one that established me as king of Israel. Of course you hear me. Keep your finger right there for a moment, by the way. We were in 2 Samuel 24 a moment ago. Turn back to the end of 2 Samuel. Let me show you one more thing. I think it's 2 Samuel 23. Go to 2 Samuel 23. There's just a little short psalm written here in 2 Samuel 23 that is not recorded in the Psalms the same way. 2 Samuel 22, the entirety of it is a very long psalm that is also Psalm 18. And so we'll be looking at that in a couple of weeks. But starting in chapter 23, there's this wonderful little insight into David's relationship with God that I think is the reason that he's had this change of mind, this change of perspective from I'm weak and I'm sick and where are you to I know that God hears me. Chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, verse 1, now these are the last words of David. Whether the last things he said or not, it's the last thing that's recorded from King David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, and the man who was raised on high, that's right, he was made king, highest in Israel, he declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, he who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God. That's David's description of himself. I rule over men by the law of God 
and I rule in the fear of God. That one is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. Truly is not my house so with God. So here's David saying, look, God spoke through me. God spoke to me. I wrote the words of God. Therefore, I realize that I'm like light in the morning when the sun rises. A morning without clouds. Like when tender grass springs up out of the earth. I'm like sunshine after rain. Truly is not my house like this with God. So he has this intimate relationship, this intimate understanding, this intimate unity with God. And every once in a while in the Psalms, we'll see this same thing repeated. Where David looks at his circumstances and says, my circumstances are bad. And I'm crying and I'm crying out to God and I'm even asking, where are you? And then he has this change of mind midstream where he remembers who God is and remembers the second half of verse 5 here. For he, God, has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? So David knows he's got this really good theology of God. He's got this really good understanding of the character and the nature of God. And he understands the promise that God has made with him, the covenant that he has made, the promise that he has made to make his household the household that is going to lead to the Savior of Israel and indeed the Savior of the world. And I think that's the context in which David can say, my house is like grass for the earth. My house is like sunshine after the rain. We are the household that have this covenant that is leading to Shiloh, leading to Messiah, because God has made this covenant and he has ordered everything and he has secured everything. That's pretty good theology right there. Very sovereign grace theology. For all my salvation and for all my desire, will he not indeed make it grow? And then, as David so often does in verse 6 and 7, the end of his last words, he talks about the worthless people. But the worthless, every one of them, will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in by hand. But a man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear. In other words, what he's saying is if you're trying to cut a plant that has thorns on it, like a rose or something, you have to cover your hands with something like iron, and then you use a spear to cut them off because you can't handle them with your hands. Because they will cut through you. And that's what worthless people are like. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with the fire in their place. Okay, so we went back and read that because we needed to understand David's attitude shift in the midst of saying, where are you, God? I cry day and night. My adversaries, my enemies have come up against me. But then he can confidently say to them, with the same confidence that Jesus is going to say it later, he can say, depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication, my crying to him, and the Lord receives my prayer. 
No longer does he say, I hope he hears. Please listen to me, God. Oh, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Don't chasten me in your wrath, please. Now he says, confidently, the Lord receives my prayers. The Lord has heard my supplication. Verse 10, all my enemies, those ones that are causing him this great grief, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly dismayed. Why? Because they're thorns that are all going to be burned up. And even he says, and when you handle them, you better protect yourself. You better have some iron on your hand and the shaft of a spear to cut them with because you can't handle them. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly dismayed, and they shall turn back and shall be suddenly ashamed. So like I said, we're going to see several psalms as we continue through the book of Psalms where David does this very thing. We're going to see this pattern over and over again, and I think it's a really important pattern because the pattern is going to God, crying out to God, begging God for mercy and help, and I think we've all been there. But then the solution to that and the solution to having a sane mind again in the midst of your struggles and your trials and the difficulties of this life, the key to being okay in the midst of horrible trials can't be found in you. You don't have that ability. All you have is the crying eyes and the flooding bed. All you have is the hope that God won't punish you in his anger. That's all you've got going for you. All you can do is make arguments to God like, hey, if I'm dead, I'm no good, do you? The only thing that's going to correct your attitude in the midst of pain is to remember who God is, what God is like, and the promises God has already made you. The very fact that he sent his son, the very fact that that covenant is struck, is finished, is complete, is the guarantee, just like David said, it's the guarantee that God is going to hear you, is going to carry you through, is going to do with you what is necessary for his great glory and your well-being. And that will keep you sane when the whole rest of the world seems totally insane. And even when they're attacking you personally, just remember who you've got on your side. It's a pretty reassuring psalm. And uh, I hope my little left turns here and there help to elucidate the psalm greater and weren't a distraction. My fear as I came in tonight was, I've got all these pieces. I hope I can order them in a way that they're not distracting. But I think that they all create a consistent profile that we're going to keep seeing time and time again in the Psalms, where David's going to go to God and say, help, and then go, oh, yeah, you are the God of help. You are my shield and my buckler. You're my ever-present help in times of danger. So remember who you're dealing with. Remember who God is. Remember what his word says. That's the only thing that will get you through the trials of this life. Yes, sir. When he's in grief and weary and moaning, the verbs are all present tense. Mm -hmm. But then when he remembers about God, all the verb tenses shift to past. And it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot for just a second who I'm dealing with. But isn't that easy to do? I'm, I'm so grateful that the Bible is so honest 
that even when we get glimpses of heroes like David, it's so easy to think David, 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 he knows God and he probably walks through life glowing and confident. And, and then you read the stories about his failures and you read the stories of God being angry at him and you, and you think, oh good, he's just like me. Good, he's in the flesh just like I am, having the same struggles I have. It's just good to know that even our biblical heroes are just like we are. Flesh and blood, same struggles. Because your flesh will get a hold of you so easily and make you think, oh, this is hard, I'm not going to get through this. I used to do this a lot in the early days of GCA. I will let you go. But in the early days of GCA, I used to do this frequently where I would say, how many of you, by show of hands, have ever been in a circumstance where you thought, this is going to kill me? Okay, so how many of you who agreed that you've been through a circumstance that you thought was going to kill you, how many of you died? No, you're still here. Why? Because God is faithful. He got you through it. And he's going to get you through the next one until he gets you all the way home. And so whenever we get in the flesh and we look at the circumstances, it's so easy for us to think, oh, this is going to kill me. And the best solution is to get our eyes back on God and think, but the God who got me through the last one is the God who's going to get me through the next one until he gets me home. So remember who you're dealing with. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.